Hello, friend, and welcome to A Nightmare Before Halloween. Take a seat here, next to the campfire. Don't you know the woods are a terribly dangerous place to be alone? I've invited a few friends here to join us tonight. They are almost exclusively crime podcasters who all have a terrifying tale to share. You're going to hear 31 spooky stories. And before we conclude with a soothing, deadly bedtime story, we'll be visited by someone the devil himself would likely think twice before crossing. All podcasts joining tonight you'll find listed in the episode show notes in order of appearance, along with a link on where to find them. If you're in the mood for true crime or spooky tales, or maybe to learn about some other podcasts you could start listening to, well, then you're in the right place. Ah, the campfire feels nice and warm now, doesn't it? I'm Shane Waters, by the way, the host of Foul Play Crime Series. And tonight, stay close. You never know who or what could be lurking in these dark woods. I'll start with the first spooky crime story of the night. Are you a believer in reincarnation? I know some folks hope to be reincarnated because they fear death, but I argue there is a fate worse than death. Peter Laws is the host of Our Curious Past and Frightful, so take a deep breath and follow Peter now as the two of you wander through the cemetery to explore this thought. What could be worse than death? Opening one's eyes into the damp, cold blackness of a buried coffin. Horrible, yes. But cases of premature burial are not only found in the fictional works of Gothic writers like Edgar Allan Poe. Shockingly, history is littered with incidents of real cases in which people have been buried alive. Essie Dunbar was 30 years old when she died. It was the summer of 1915 in Blackville, South Carolina, when she had a seizure. She'd had fits before. She was epileptic, but this one was incredibly severe, and it left her lying on the ground seemingly lifeless. A physician was quickly called to examine her, and everybody's worst fears were confirmed. Essie was pronounced dead. Her corpse was placed into a wooden coffin and a funeral service was quickly arranged for the following morning. Despite the speed at which the funeral was arranged, most of Essie's relatives were able to attend the service to say goodbye. But Essie's sister, who hurried to attend, arrived late. By the time she rushed to the churchyard, the service was almost over. In fact, the coffin had already been lowered into the grave and dirt had been thrown across it. Yet she wanted to see her sister one final time, and so the minister and the undertakers kindly agreed they would dig the soil away and lift the coffin for one last farewell. The screws were slowly and carefully removed, and then the lid was prized open and lifted off. And that is when the screams began, because the body of Essie suddenly sat up, turned towards her sister, and smiled at her. The ministers were horrified and recoiled from the sight, falling backwards from the grave. 
Others scramble to get away, trampling a man who broke his rib in the chaos. The solemn funeral service erupted into hysterical panic. On seeing Essie grinning at her, the sister shrieked in fright and ran away, as did the others. And those who dared to look back would see a sight to chill the bones. Essie, who had died the day before, was crawling out of the coffin and she was running after them into town. The mourners would have to get over their fright because Essie was clearly back and she intended to stay. Indeed, she would live among them for another 40 years. And though the locals may have whispered rumors at night that their town now had a permanent ghost or zombie, most people knew the truth. And the fact that the explanation was natural made it no less terrifying. Essie had been buried alive on that awful summer morning in 1915. And if it wasn't for her sister, she'd have been left down there forever. Unlike Essie Dunbar, not all people managed to escape the grave. Like Samuel MacDonald. The year was 1815, when Samuel MacDonald was working alone. It was a remote, wooded area of Maine, New England, and he was used to the challenges of the American wilderness, the difficult terrain, the harsh weather, the deadly wildlife, and of course, the loneliness. Yet at least he could always rely on his good health to see him through, until that is one day when he started to feel unwell. He hoped his illness might pass, but it got worse and more worrying by the day. If this was us today, we'd have options in this situation. Phones with GPS trackers, medication, 4x4 trucks to get us through any landscape. But Samuel was born in 1771. This was not a time for options. Alone and unsure of what to do, Samuel just lit a fire and lay in front of it, desperately praying that the rest and warmth might perk him up. It did not. It's not clear who discovered Samuel, but somebody found his corpse still laid out by the long-dead fire not far from Umbagog Lake. They managed to get word to Samuel's sons, who then made the long, heartbreaking trek to pay their respects. After traveling hundreds of miles, they finally arrived at his cabin. Grief-stricken, the sons wanted to honor their father with a proper burial. Yet the weather conditions were too harsh. Dragging a cadaver across the wintry terrain would be impossible and so instead they dug a grave in the forest nearby. Then they placed their dad in a temporary wooden coffin. They sank him into a hole, deep enough to avoid any animals burrowing in and getting to their dad. And then they shoveled the soil on top, packing it down and said a final farewell, with a promise that they would return the following spring. This lonely wilderness grave was hardly ideal, but it would at least give some peace to Samuel and they would return later to take him back home for a full and proper burial. The winter passed, and so the boys returned in the new year ready to begin the grim task of digging their father back up. They headed into the wood and slammed their shovels in, scattering the songbirds as they did. Then finally, metal hit wood. We can't be sure what made the McDonald boys open the coffin that day. Maybe they wanted to give one final nod of respect to their loving parent. Or maybe something seemed off about the lid. 
Whatever the reason, they decided to prise the wooden lid open to check on their dad. They braced themselves to see a decomposed face, but were baffled to see the back of their father's head instead. Samuel MacDonald was no longer lying on his back as they had placed him. He had somehow turned over onto his stomach. Had animals got to the body after all, or had some ghoulish passerby desecrated the grave? Confused, they reached down and gently lifted their dad up. He took some tugging. When they finally pulled him high enough to see, they saw something that would haunt their nights forever. Samuel MacDonald had not been turned by anyone else. He had turned himself through a panicked sense of disorientation. He had not died by the fire after all. He had died right there in the hole. Without realizing it, his boys had buried him alive. And when the sons lifted him out, they saw the despair of their father's final moments. Toward the end, Samuel MacDonald had used his teeth to gnaw his way through the wooden boards in a wild and panicked and useless attempt at escape. Stories like this helped fuel the widespread dread of premature burial in the 17th and 18th centuries. In response, a number of elaborate fail-safe systems were invented, like coffins having glass windows and breathing tubes through which the victim could suck in much-needed air and scream for help. Even better, some systems had a run of cords from the hand of the corpse to a bell above the ground, though perhaps a pistol and a single bullet might have been the most welcome addition of them all. Now, thankfully, advances in medical science mean accidentally burying people is less likely today, but make no mistake, it can still happen. Like Mildred Clark in 1994. She was 86 years old when a coroner in New York declared her deceased. She was wheeled into the freezer at the morgue and lay there for an hour and a half before one of the supervisors happened to notice her move. And yet it's still thought that today, with more thorough procedures, the chances of being buried alive are slim. But they are not zero. Actually, when you think about it, perhaps the chances are much more than that. Because there is one other chilling possibility. There may be more premature burials than we ever imagined. And that the recorded numbers are low simply because we never get to find out. And how could we? These days, over half of all cadavers are cremated, and that proportion is growing. How many of them flutter their eyes open if only for a moment to find themselves in an oven? That is terrifying enough. But perhaps it's preferable to the alternative. The thought of others right now, somewhere in the world, desperately scraping and gnawing their fingernails against wood in what Edgar Allan Poe called the rigid embrace of the narrow house the coffin from which they cannot escape. Perhaps we should take some comfort in the fact that most people would not survive much longer than an hour in a properly buried airtight coffin. Still though, when you wake up to find yourself in a casket six feet under the ground, way too deep for anybody to hear you scream, 60 minutes can feel like an awfully long time. So, are you now fearful of being buried alive? Before you go worrying about that, first maybe you should stay away from the Ohio River. Paige is the host of Reverie, 
Reverie means to daydream, but sometimes when we zone out, intrusive thoughts can creep in. We might start to think about our anxieties and worst fears. Is there a green-clawed beast in the Ohio River waiting to snatch you up when you least expect it? Be careful if you ever go to Indiana and decide to take a dip in the Ohio River. The movie The Creature from the Black Lagoon came out in 1954, but could there actually be a creature just like it living in the Ohio River? This story begins in Evansville, Indiana, August 21st, 1955. Peak summertime, and everyone is ready to be immersed in cool waters. All everyone wanted to do during the summer was go for a dip in the river, swim, and have a good time while cooling off. At this point in time, people's households had no air conditioners, which was a completely miserable experience. A woman named Naomi Johnson, her three kids, and Naomi's good friend Louise Lamble headed out to West Evansville to hop into the Ohio River to soak in the coolness of the water to relax them in this awful heat. The river is roughly 15 feet deep. A few sources say that the two women witnessed what appeared to be a UFO. To them, it looked like the underside of a bushel barrel, but they didn't take it too seriously and shrugged it off. There's no way it could have been a UFO, right? They get to the river, and everything is going as planned. Louise and Naomi's kids were hanging out on the shore, Louise was laying out while the kids were playing around. Naomi was around 15 feet away from the shoreline, enjoying her wade in the water, when something bizarre and terrifying occurred. Something curled around Naomi's knee. All of a sudden, Naomi was bent backwards and violently slapping the water. She was scared to death and explained that it felt like a ginormous hand. She said it also felt furry and had claws. This thing submerged her underwater, but she was able to kick it off, and she popped up to the surface, taking a huge breath, then screaming her lungs out. In that moment, whatever this was clutched her leg again, her friend Louise was in utter shock. She was frozen in terror, staring at her friend. Eventually, she did start yelling for help, which everyone up and down the shore heard. <coughs> Louise snapped out of it and leaped into the water to get her inner tube and move it towards Naomi, who was able to get a good grasp of it. Naomi was struggling to ascend onto the floatable device, but she got away from this beast and ultimately got a few feet to the shoreline. It's possible that the splash of Louise jumping into the water for the inner tube frightened the creature and that's the reason it let go. 
Medical help finally got to the river. Naomi had her cuts and scratches taken care of on her lower leg, but there was a really weird blue-green stain that none of the medics could get rid of. It left the mark of a great big hand, and for a few days, it stayed on her leg. Reportedly, a sample was taken from the print, and according to one source I read, the discolorations were proven to be mud from caves beneath the river, and possibly swirled around and stirred up by boat traffic or any underwater movement. After this happened, the legend of the green-clawed beast was born. Some people believe, after the way Naomi described what she felt, that this creature bared a striking resemblance to the Thetis Lake Monster, which is known to be in Canada. That creature is super hostile. Others think this could have been the Loveland Frogman, which Christy and Heather of the Sinisterhood podcast did a great and hilarious episode on. Or this could have been the works of the Big Muddy Monster, who was first seen on the Big Muddy River. Now, there are a few theories that could be reasonable possibilities. Maybe it was a huge garfish. There had been catfish said to be as huge as a Volkswagen, and catfish can really injure you if you encounter one. Fish fins could also possibly cause the hand-like impressions. There were a few movies that came out recently before the attack, which could make Naomi and others freak out more. The Creature from the Black Lagoon, where a massive green creature with claw hands strikes a female as she is swimming. Also, Part 2, Revenge of the Creature, had just come out a few weeks prior to their trip to the river. Terry Colvin, an investigator, had talked to Naomi and her husband after this traumatic episode happened. They told Terry, a man who said he was an Air Force colonel, who really sounded like a character out of the movie Men in Black, he came to their home and said that neither of them could ever speak of that event again after he interviewed them and took very detailed notes. According to AmericanMonsters.com, first brought to international attention in the early 1970s, this grisly aberration of natural selection has been described as being nearly five feet tall and weighing approximately 120 pounds, with an epidermis consisting solely of silver scales. This animal's horrifying visage is made complete by the six razor-sharp spikes, connected to one another by a thin webbing, which are said to protrude from its amphibious skull. With its dark, bulbous eyes, fish-like mouth, and webbed hands, feet, and ears, the Thetis Lake monster bears more than a passing resemblance to the iconoclastic image of the creature from the Black Lagoon. 
What lends credibility to these reports, however, is the fact that for centuries, North American natives have reported numerous and oftentimes fatal encounters with various creatures which they describe as being carnivorous aquatic humanoids. Naomi's experience gained the interest of ufologists because on the same date that this happened to her, a horrifying case which is said to be one of the most terrifying ever recorded in ufology, there were encounters with bizarre creatures known as the Hopkinsville Goblin Case. As far as the green-clawed beast, there has not been a sighting or incident since. However, the story has only grown since the kids who witnessed it went on to tell the story and it spread like wildfire ever since. Some are still terrified to get into the Ohio River. What do you think? Could there be a strange amphibious humanoid creature living in the Ohio River? Or is there a more rational explanation and this was all out of fear, dread, panic, and imagination? Until next time, stay safe and take care. <sighs> no swimming in lakes for me. If you're looking for a not-so-evil queen to worship, Joshua should be your podcast host of choice. I'm honestly a bit scared of him, so I'm just going to let Joshua, from rotten to the core, take it from here. We all know the tradition of lighting jack-o'-lanterns on Halloween to keep away evil spirits. Their tradition comes from 19th century Ireland and it started with turnips carved with demonic faces to keep away the spirit of Stingy Jack, a man who tricked the devil from collecting his soul but was doomed to roam the earth forevermore, unable to attain heaven or hell. Families started lighting their lanterns on Halloween to save themselves from his and other evil spirits. That's a myth, though, right? I mean, nothing like that could possibly happen, could it? Happy Halloween, my darlings. This is Joshua Waters, your not-so-evil queen and the host of Rotten to the Core. And thank you for joining us all on this special spooky collaboration. Come now, gather round the fire, and hear my tale. The story that is pulled straight from hell. October 30th, 2012 seemed like a normal day for Elzbieta Plakowska, her seven-year-old son Justin, and his five-year-old friend who was spending the night, Olivia Dwakowski, in Naperville, Illinois. Early into the night, as three of them were winding down in the main bedroom of the condo, Elzbieta started to feel a presence. She wasn't sure exactly what it was. That was until it started to speak to her. Soon, a black shadow was making itself visible to her and even started to convince her that her son and his friend were possessed by the devil himself. 
Elzbieta claims that the shadow started to tell her to kill them. Kill them. You are going to be the last one, she said the shadow told her. You are going to die, but you will be the last one. Something in the shadow's voice held power over her. She then went to the kitchen to grab a knife. The compelling drawl of the unearthly aspirations of the apparition was just too much for Elzbieta, and she proceeded to stab both children over 100 times, before even then killing the family's two dogs. Believing that by killing the children, she was allowing them to enter heaven. After the murders, Elzbieta was interviewed by several investigators and psychiatrists. Some believe she was browbeaten into a confession by police after she claimed that her life and marriage were her motivation. Dr. Philip Resnick, the main defense expert who worked on the case, stated that her father's death in her home country of Poland just several weeks before was a big contributor to her descent into madness. Even several friends and neighbors claimed that she was acting unusual and talked about devils in the days that led up to the crime. He also said that it was unheard of for someone to fake manic and psychotic symptoms for the number of days Plakowska exhibited them after the murders. The jury didn't believe her deed of the devil story, which she and her defense team put together and Elzbieta Plekowska was charged with first-degree murder and given life in prison in 2017. We may never know if she was just struggling with a psychotic breakdown or if she was truly haunted by something evil and unknown. Something so dark that it could cause a loving mother to horrifically murder two innocent children and dogs on that bloody devil's night not so long ago. Sweet dreams, my darlings, and don't forget to light your (laughs) jack-o'-lanterns. You may not know this by the sound of our voices, but Joshua and I are actually brothers. I was going to joke about him being the older one, but I'm a bit worried for my safety, so I'm just going to leave that bit out. What you also probably didn't know is that my next friend has been sitting here quietly and patiently this entire time. He's just kind like that. Robin Ward is from The Trail Went Cold, which is like Unsolved Mysteries, but in podcast form. This is the tale of the unsolved 1981 murders, Ronald Sisman and Elizabeth Platt. So at around 7.40 p.m. on Halloween night in 1981, the New York City Police Department was summoned to a third-floor duplex apartment on West 22nd Street in the Chelsea section of Manhattan near Greenwich Village. When they arrived, they discovered that two people had been brutally murdered. One of the victims was Ronald Sisman, a 39-year-old freelance photographer from Canada who operated his business from the apartment. The second victim was Elizabeth Platzman, a 20-year-old art major and honor student at Smith College in Massachusetts who originally hailed from the village of Roslyn in Long Island. The couple had met several weeks earlier before they started dating. Both victims were severely beaten before Ron was shot four times and Elizabeth shot three times 
and each of them received one execution-style bullet to the back of their heads. Since no witnesses reported hearing any shots, silencers may have been used. Police suspected that at least two killers were involved, and since there were no signs of forced entry, they believed that the victims willingly let the perpetrators inside the apartment before they were attacked. The place had also been ransacked, but it was unclear if anything was actually stolen. However, Rod's neighbors told investigators that they believed he sold drugs from his apartment in order to supplement his income, creating a potential motive for the crime. A small amount of white powder believed to be cocaine was found at the scene, and since Elizabeth's friends and family denied that she had any involvement with drugs or illegal activity, she may have simply been in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is pretty much the only hard information we have about the murders, but like I mentioned earlier, this case does have some odd rabbit holes which may or may not be connected to what happened. For starters, one year before he was killed, Ron had faced potential legal trouble from an actress named Melanie Holler, who once had a recurring role on the popular sitcom Welcome Back, Cotter. She became acquainted with Ron when he photographed her on a few occasions, but in April of 1980, Ron took Melanie to a dinner party being held at the home of a show business promoter named Roy Radin. Well, Melanie soon made headlines when she publicly accused Raiden of drugging, beating, and raping her at the party, and also claimed that Raiden and some of the other partygoers had filmed the whole thing. For his part, Raiden said that Melanie had willingly taken part in some sadomasochistic games, maintaining that everything that happened to her was consensual. Even though Raiden was initially charged with numerous offenses, he ultimately only pled guilty to the charge of illegal possession of a handgun for which he received a sentence of three years probation and a $1,000 fine. In May of 1983, Raiden was murdered in a contract hit while he was financing the Francis Ford Coppola-directed film The Cotton Club, but that's probably a story for another podcast. Anyway, three days after the incident at Raiden's party, Melanie alleged that she went to visit Ron at his apartment and he drugged her. However, Ron claimed that Melanie was acting hysterical and he only gave her a legally prescribed tranquilizer to calm her down. In the end, Melanie decided not to press charges against Ron, and the authorities ultimately believed that this whole saga had no connection to the murders of Ron and Elizabeth. However, the investigation went in a completely different direction when an inmate at the Attica Correctional Facility came forward and implicated one of the most infamous serial killers of all time, the son of Sam himself, David Berkowitz. Now, I'm sure most of you already know this story, but from the summer of 1976 until 1977, New York City was terrorized by a series of crimes known as the Son of Sam murders, as a total of six people were shot to death and seven others were seriously wounded. The perpetrator was eventually identified as David Berkowitz, who received six life sentences for his crimes, but the case has always been surrounded by conspiracy theories about how Berkowitz was supposedly a member of a satanic cult which orchestrated the Son of Sam murders, and he did not commit all the shootings alone. If you're a fan of Unsolved Mysteries, you've probably watched their creepy two-part segment which explored this theory, and of course, Netflix released an entire documentary series about it titled The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness. According to this inmate at Attica, a few weeks before Ron and Elizabeth were killed, Berkowitz had told him that the satanic cult he was associated with was planning a ritualistic murder, which would take place in or near Greenwich Village on Halloween. 
Berkowitz allegedly described it as a quote-unquote inside house-cleaning thing and said that a male and female would get their heads shot off before evidence was removed from the scene. Of course, this fit the description of the Sisman-Platzman murder, and when questioned about it, Berkowitz claimed that Ron possessed an actual snuff film from one of the Son of Sam shootings. Since Ron was supposedly facing his own legal problems over potential drug charges, he was planning to turn the snuff film over to the authorities in exchange for immunity from prosecution. However, after Ron and Elizabeth were murdered, the film was taken by the perpetrators, and Berkowitz apparently provided an accurate description of Ron's apartment, suggesting that he may have had inside knowledge of what happened. If that wasn't enough, Berkowitz would provide a tie-in to this other side story involving Roy Radin. As you recall, Radin was murdered in a contract hit in 1983, and four separate people went to prison for their roles in the crime. One of them was a guy named William Menser, who shot Radin several times in the head, and then put a stick of dynamite in his mouth in order to blow off his face and make identification more difficult. Berkowitz claimed that Menser was a former associate of Charles Manson and a member of a satanic cult, who referred to him as Manson II. In fact, Berkowitz said that Menser was responsible for the 1974 murder of 19-year-old Stanford University student Arliss Perry, who was also supposedly the victim of this cult. But of course, the problem with that claim is that in 2018, DNA profiling linked Arliss's murder to a suspect named Stephen Blake Crawford, the security guard who discovered her body, and he fatally shot himself when police showed up to arrest him. So yeah, when I first heard about this whole Berkowitz satanic cult theory on Unsolved Mysteries during the late 1980s, I bought it hook, line, and sinker, but as the years have gone on, I've grown a lot more skeptical and now believe the theory was nothing more than a symptom of the satanic panic which pervaded American culture during that time period. In fact, the detail about these two victims being killed because they possessed a snuff film pretty much makes this crime the perfect stereotype of a 1980s moral panic. In the end, no evidence was ever found to corroborate Berkowitz's story that Ron and Elizabeth were murdered by a satanic cult, and I'm skeptical that Berkowitz had any inside knowledge about the crime, or that this so-called snuff film ever existed. It's possible the authorities are correct, and the crime was drug-related, but I can see why we have these wild, sensationalistic theories. I mean, this is an unsolved double murder which took place on Halloween, and supposedly had connections to Son of Sam, a snuff film, the Cotton Club murders, and Welcome Back, Cotter. You can't get any stranger than that, but I'm sure most of these angles are nothing more than red herrings. However, until we know the full truth, the murders of Ronald Sisman and Elizabeth Platzman will continue to remain one of the most bizarre, unsolved Halloween mysteries of all time. You know the rest. I guess you could say, the trail went cold. The trail went cold indeed, Robin. Next, I'd like you to imagine how a mother could end the lives of her two children, all in the name of love. Esther is the host of Once Upon a Crime. Each week, she creates gripping, storytelling episodes with details you simply won't hear anywhere else. Esther, I'll let you take it from here. Susan Smith was a 23-year-old mother living in Union, South Carolina in 1994. She had two boys, 
Michael was three years old, and her youngest, Alexander, just 14 months. On October 25, 1994, a desperate call came into 911. Susan reported that she had been carjacked by a stranger. Her two boys had been strapped in their car seats in the backseat of her vehicle when the man approached her at a stoplight. At gunpoint, he demanded she get out of the car. Then the man drove off with her two little boys still in the back seat. A statewide manhunt ensued to search for the kidnapper and find the missing children. Susan and her husband David, who were going through a divorce, appeared on television to plead for the safe return of their babies. Susan wept throughout her statement, begging the carjacker to let her boys come home. But investigators had harbored doubts about Smith's story from the beginning, and within days were able to secure a confession from the young mother. On that cold October evening, Smith had strapped her sleepy children into their car seats, driven her car to the shore of John D. Long Lake, and parked it in the middle of the boat ramp. Placing the car in neutral, she released the handbrake and exited the vehicle. Smith watched as the car slowly rolled into the lake with her two children trapped inside. After the car was fully submerged in the water, she walked to a nearby house where she banged on the door and claimed she'd just been carjacked. Smith's motivation for murdering her own babies? She'd been having an affair with a co-worker who had just broken off the relationship. She had fallen in love with him and become possessive and clingy. One of the reasons he'd stated for breaking up with Smith was that he was not ready to take on the responsibility of her two children. Angry and distraught at being jilted and desperate to keep her lover, Susan Smith did the unthinkable. She became one of the most hated women in America and was looked upon as no less than a monster. Mothers who kill are viewed as the most evil type of murderer. A woman who can so callously take the lives of the babies she has carried in her own womb, given birth to, and whom should love and protect them more fiercely than anyone else on earth, what could be more cruel? In fact, a legend that is as old as time, and one I learned at the knee of my Mexican grandmother as a little girl, has been passed down for generations as a true horror story. The monster at the center of that story? A woman who drowns her two little boys. The legend goes something like this. Once a long, long time ago, there was a beautiful young girl named Maria who lived in a small village. She was beautiful but haughty. All the local boys, humble farmers and ranch hands, wanted to woo the lovely Maria, but she would turn her nose up at them. She was going to marry the most handsome man in the world, and she would be rich as well. One day that handsome man rode into town. He was the son of a wealthy rancher. Maria set her sights on him. She prepared herself to catch his attention by wearing her finest outfit, a beautiful white dress that she knew played up her long black hair, her flashing deep brown eyes, and her lips painted a bright red. She also wore high-heeled shoes that made a sharp clicking sound as she walked down the lane. She arrived at the town square and caught the attention of the handsome vaquero. The young man sought her out, and he quickly fell in love and asked for her hand. The humble peasant girl was now the wife of a rich rancher. At first, all was wonderful for Maria. She lived in a beautiful home and in short order had two children, both sons. But not long after her sons were born, her husband began to spend less time at home. He said he needed to attend to ranch business, but she suspected he was off seeing other women and that he was now bored with her. When he was home, he spent little time with Maria, only paying attention to his two boys. 
Maria became jealous, not only of the other women she suspected he was seeing, but of her own two sons as well. Maria was used to having the admiration of all the men in the village, and now her own husband ignored her. One day, Maria was walking along the river with her boys, and her husband, who'd been gone for days, drove by in a carriage. He stopped the carriage and got out to hug and kiss his sons in greeting. He also spoiled them with gifts of candy. For Maria, there was nothing, not even a greeting. She seethed as she stood at the side of the road, ignored. But she was even more angry when she looked inside the carriage and saw that a younger woman, nicely dressed and obviously wealthy, was inside. She now had proof that her husband was two-timing her, and she was furious. Her husband and the woman drove off in the carriage, and Maria could not control her anger. She looked into the eyes of her two beautiful boys, and all she could see was the image of their cheating father. Enraged, and before she knew what she was doing, she picked up her sons one at a time and threw them into the river below. Watching them sink into the dark waters, she screamed and ran down to them, but it was too late. The river had carried them away. Maria, as if in a daze, went home and put on her beautiful white dress and high heels. She returned to the riverbank and walked up and down along the shore, crying and calling out for her children. After a time, people from nearby began to hear a woman's pitiful cries and followed the sound to the river. They saw the woman in a white dress, now splattered with river mud and torn by the jagged rocks. Her face was frozen into a mask of grief. Her hair was wild and tangled by the wind. Some of the men climbed down towards the river to try and help her, but before they could reach her, she let out one last cry, "'Where are you, my children?' and then plunged herself into the water. The strong current carried her away, never to be seen again. From now on, the beautiful Maria, who had killed her own children and then taken her own life, would be known as La Llorona, which means the crying woman. Now, children who have learned the story of La Llorona can sometimes hear late at night, after the clock strikes midnight, the sound of high heels clicking outside their windows as they're just drifting off to sleep. Sometimes they can hear her weeping. Other times, La Llorona cries out in a terrifying voice, calling to her dead children. But children are warned. If they are naughty or have recently acted like a travieso, a disobedient child, La Llorona may become angry. Then without warning, she will snatch them up and carry them off into the spirit world. Or God forbid, the child struggles to free themselves from her icy grasp. Then she may pitch them into the dark, cold river where they will be carried off to the netherworld. So children learn to beware of La Llorona. We're told never to stay up past our bedtimes or play outside after dark. Because if we do, we may hear the cries of La Llorona coming to carry us off. It looks like my next friend is running a little late. They do this sometimes. You have friends like this too, right? While we wait, let's stop here. <laughs> 